My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast. Welcome back, everyone. It's been a fun week since we last uh, spoke in this one-sided conversation. So a lot's been happening. I'm really enjoying school. I've had some exams that got done. Didn't fail any. It's wonderful. So we're just going to move in today after, once again, I thank you for everything you've done to help promote this show. Continue to appreciate everything you're doing. We're going to be heading today into the book of Luke. This is going to be chapter five, the entirety of that. So starting with verses one through 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. And here, we met him earlier, but truly, we get to meet Peter and how he responds to Jesus the first time around here is one of the greatest bits. I would not say of conversion because I don't think Peter does yet. I don't think he does, and his disciples don't until after the cross when they finally understand what happened, why they had to do what they do. But it's that realization for Peter that something needs to be done here that I really appreciate in this part of the book. But foremost among this, we see that Jesus needed men to lead his ministry once he was gone. Jesus is already prepping for the future after he dies and resurrects and leaves this world behind to reign above. Someone is going to have to be there to know who he is nobody was talking about, and then be able to teach others to do the same. And that's why he starts picking out the disciples right here and now. And his first is Peter. But before all, we get into him real quick. We see, we are called to carry out the mission of Christ almost 2,000 years after it was started. Have you realized that about yourself if you're a follower of Christ? You represent an unbroken chain of faithful believers because someone had to introduce you to Christ. Unbroken chain from over almost 2,000 years of history. And if that doesn't astonish you, like, I don't know why you're listening to this because that blows my mind to think that I don't know who's been a part of that chain. But I do know that those were faithful people who brought others to Christ. And now as a result of that, 
I am here. My family's here. A lot of you are here. That's amazing. But this doesn't happen without Jesus choosing these men to go and get it done. Jesus chooses them specifically because they're going to be the ones to do that job. Now, men and women are all called to disciple in different ways, and we are all called to raise up those who will take up their spots even when they're still alive. I think of my old youth pastor, Dump Harper. Uh, Great man. I love him immensely. It's been so long since I've had a chance to talk to him. But what he would do when this stuff like this was brought up, he would get very upset because he kept hearing (laughs) so many times uh, people saying, oh, we're just prepping for the next generation. And he was not happy with that because he didn't think of us in that audience as the next generation. He thought of us as the current generation who would then lead the next generation once we were make, able to make other believers. So and we kind of get this in a sense like, oh, well, it's just the, the older people who they're the current generation. But actually, it's all of us. As soon as we accept Christ, we're part of that generation. And we're going to keep going. We're going to keep making disciples, just like what's been happening for over 2,000 years. Well, excuse me, about 2,000 years. I keep wanting to say over, and it's really bothering me. That's not how history works. But let's look at these men. Jesus chooses absolute nobodies to get this work done. We talked earlier about how shepherds were looked down on. Well, fishermen were too. They were seen as a bunch of uneducated hicks. They just went out in the boat. They got all tan. They took their catches back home. They weren't much of anything. Uh, They provided the service, and that was it. But Jesus chose these men, these more than likely uneducated and more than likely illiterate men whose only formal training would be weekly meetings at the synagogue, just hearing the word of the Lord, and that'd be about it. These people were not Pharisees. They were not Sadducees. They were not officials. They were not nobles. They were nobodies. And yet Jesus chose them anyway because he defies our logic for his glory. I'll be reading real quick out of 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. This will be from the Good News Translation, the GNT. Excuse me, not uh, 26, 31, 26 through 28. (laughs) That was from an older draft. I apologize. Now, remember what you were, my friends, when God called you. From the human point of view, few of you were wise or powerful or of high social standing. God purposefully purposefully chose what the world considers nonsense in order to shame the wise, and he chose what the world considers weak in order to shame the powerful. He chose what the world looks down on and despises and thinks is nothing in order to destroy what the world thinks is important. And friend, you and I are a part of that. I don't come from money. I don't come from the highest pedigree. But what I am is someone who Christ chose specifically to do his will in this world. And the same is true of you if you are his. And the same will be true should you come to him. 
We don't have to be the president. We don't have to be a major CEO of a company. We just have to be who Jesus called us to be from the lowest to the highest. doesn't matter. Furthermore, in this section, when confronted with Jesus's power and authority, what does Peter do? Peter immediately realizes that he is a sinful and broken man who desperately needs a savior, and he submits to Jesus, as do his fellows in the sons of Zebedee. This doesn't stop. Let me stress that. This doesn't stop Peter and the others from screwing up immensely later on, even after meeting Jesus. But this is the start of a journey that will end with Peter saved and dying for one of the only people in the world who ever believed in him. It's your first step into a much larger world. Said Obi-Wan, says Jesus. I'll move on from there to verses 12 through 16. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad. Page flip. And great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So, leprosy. I'm not here to assume you know what leprosy is. Those of us who've been raised in a church, we've heard it all the time. But to explain, leprosy is kind of a catch-all term used in the Bible, used in uh, back in the day to describe a bunch of different skin diseases and disorders that Luke, no doubt, being a physician, would have been familiar with. So, what is leprosy? Well, across the board, hopefully you can't hear that car horn in the background. Yeah, there it got stopped. <laughs> leprosy causes pain receptors in the body to shut down, sometimes completely, sometimes to a lesser extent, depends on what kind of uh, skin disease you've gotten, meaning that it's a lot more difficult for someone afflict- afflicted with it to notice they've been cut or burnt or some other thing or something's really cold. Thus, it easily scars their skin and allows plenty of bacterial agents into their body that they otherwise could have avoided. I mean, just think about it. Like, I I get cut. Like, I cut myself. <laughs> I cut myself yesterday, in one of the dumbest ways possible. I was doing my Hebrew homework, and I flipped the pencil over, and my index finger landed on the lead from that pencil, and it opened the skin. I don't know how it's possible. That's what happened. I stood there. I was like, wait, okay, I'm not bleeding, but dang, that hurts. What if I couldn't have felt that? I could have just flipped that pencil over and it would have been there the entire time and anything could have gone and hurt me from that point in time. A a virus could have gotten in, bacteria, what have you. But because I recognized that, oh, well, I need to put on a Band-Aid. And I did that. It stopped anything from getting in. That solves a lot of things. Well, back in the day, you can't do that. So what would happen? Most people would not die of leprosy, but mostly they got infected by 
when they had leprosy. So across the board in ancient cultures, and even sometimes still to today, it's seen as a slow death sentence. And the afflicted were heavily ostracized and quarantined to prevent its spread. And at best, they were forced to beg to survive. So you see the desperation of this man coming to Jesus. This is something no human doctor at that time, we barely can do it now to any extent with certain uh, strains of leprosy. No one can solve it except the healer, the ultimate healer. And what does he ask Jesus? That if you may, if you will, you can do this. He doesn't demand it of Jesus. He says, if you will, it will be done. And Jesus says, I will. Not only that, so we have four words in that translation I used. But in the Greek, Jesus responds with one word. And I'm going to butcher it, so here we go. Catharis theti. Catharis theti. One word removes a disease that no one else can solve. Thus, one more, once more, showcasing Jesus' power over nature. One word, and this man's life is changed forever. And then we see after this, once again, Jesus has commanded someone not to reveal his true nature, as he didn't want people to be sidetracked about what was going on. He didn't want his mission to go off the rails, because there'd be a bunch of loony fans out there who wanted to appoint him king. What Jesus also shows in this is a respect for God's laws that no longer apply to us, but still did in that day as Jesus had not died and resurrected. And these are laws his father made. These are laws God put into the, the Jewish people's hearts to follow. And so what he did is he's showing his respect for God's laws, but also helping out this man, because if he doesn't follow the law, he's still going to be ostracized. But because he goes to the priest, shows, hey, I'm no longer afflicted with leprosy, he can rejoin the community, showcasing Jesus's true compassion for this man. But then later on, the final part of this verse, it also shows us that Jesus continued to model how those who serve in ministry and the church should act by giving himself time away from others in order to prepare for what comes next. Isn't that great? We need to get away sometimes. We can be too mission-focused, too mission-minded to forget the fact that we are human beings and we need to rest as well. Brothers and sisters, do not do that. It is harmful. It is bad. Also, don't go in the ultra way like I do and then do too much resting because that is also bad. Laziness is bad. And hypocritical humor at its finest. When I say that out loud, just being honest with you, but don't do it. You need to focus on what to do. Don't move yourself away if you don't need to rest. So we'll move on from there to verses 17 through 26. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. 
but finding no way to bring him in. Because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified and were filled with all, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. What a beautiful, excellent picture of Jesus' love and compassion. In this chapter alone, it's on full showcase. And a lot of other things are too. But before we get to that miracle, let us first praise like Jesus does. Praise the men who were bringing the paralyzed man to Jesus for their devotion and care to someone who otherwise wouldn't be able to reach Jesus. Now, I know with conversations with other people I've had, there's been a huge outcry from the disabled community, which represents a large group of people of very different disabilities, against the idea of being fixed, uh, against the idea of being seen as less than. And there's a lot of things there I agree with. Like, look, just because God has allowed something like that to happen, someone who's mute, deaf, uh, is unable to move their arm, what have you, doesn't make them less than. What it means is that God is doing something different than them than it happens with the vast majority of us. They're not freaks. They're not people we have to ignore. These are children of God just as much as us. But to wipe away that disability and to pray for it to be gone with the intent of saying, then you'll be normal, is bad. Praying for it to be gone is a wonderful thing because that means you're no longer afflicted with it. But if you're doing it out of a sense of, well, I just want you to be normal like everyone else, what what constitutes normal to begin with? I've seen... A lot of people out there that would say they're normal and they're anything but. Like, guys, be mindful of that person. Ask them first if you want them to pray for that to be taken away. And then realize God may not take it away. And that does not make him any lesser than who he is. Love on people regardless of where they are. So, also we see here, quite importantly for all of us, Jesus knows our thoughts and he will call us out for them because we are disobedient and sinful people. Yet, yet, Jesus is still kind enough to answer the Pharisees' blasphemous questions to show mercy to them. Doesn't that just blow, just blow your mind? How could Jesus do this? These people hate him. They're crying out against him, yet he's still takes the time to ask, excuse me, to answer their unasked questions to show who he is. And good people, he knows our thoughts as well. Be careful with what we think and do. 
and I'm still pointing at myself when I say this. Jesus knows, not because he's acting like a watchdog and the moment we screw up, you know, he's going to kick us out. But because we need to guard our thoughts and focus on him, be mindful of what you think. Then we see his question back to them. This pierces, excuse me, his response to them, I should say. This pierces. Oh, no. Sorry, I was looking at a different part of the chapter. Yes, this question that he asked to them. So this destroys completely their logic so fast it's not even funny. Jesus is one of the, like, he's a comeback king. He's always got it, the jab prepared to destroy someone's argument. And it's glorious. And he asked them, what? which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? Well, it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven. To say that, but for it actually to be done, is more difficult than taking away a disease, than taking away a physical ailment like this. Thus, once more, showcasing who Jesus is and what awesome power and authority he has. No one else there has the authority to heal the physical wounds of men unless God gives it to them. And no one, except for Jesus, except for the Trinity, can heal the spiritual wounds of men and women because he is the Messiah and no other human being can possibly hope to achieve this. Never forget that. We don't have that same authority to the same extent. We can get people to be brought to repentance, but I can never die for someone and remove their guilt. Only Jesus could. We see also The paralyzed man needed physical healing, but the most important thing he needed from this moment was to have his sins forgiven. If Jesus had stopped simply with just forgiving him his sins, then he would have been right and just to do so. But because he far exceeds your expectations and mine, he also healed the man who promptly praised God with a full knowledge of the battle that had just been fought for his soul right in front of him. And the man rejoiced and praised God because he knew, as we're about to see with someone else here in a second, he knew, just like Peter before this, who he was and his need for a savior. That is the more important battle. I'm not saying we should never pray for those who are afflicted with with disease, cancer, what have you. What I am saying is the more important battle is where that person's heart is. Because we can deal with it here and now. We can give treatment to certain things. But no human can treat the soul. Only Jesus can. Moving on to verses 27 through 32. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a great, excuse me, a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repent. I love snarky Jesus. 
He's so much fun. He calls them out immediately. And he doesn't care about their opinions. He doesn't care about their standing. He points to the truth in a loving fashion. So we've already discussed before what tax collectors did and their many sins and how they took advantage of people. So we can see point by point why everyone is acting the way they do at this event at Levi slash Matthew's house. Levi seeks repentance for all the terrible things he's done. He knows the people he's swindled. He knows the people he's taken advantage of. But when Jesus comes and offers him a way out, he takes it. And he is forgiven. The Pharisees, however, see Jesus as sinful for being in the company of an immensely sinful man and his entourage and his friends. Guilt by association has become so prevalent in Christian society today, it really stings my heart that you can't go out in certain circles. Not all. Some Christians are really good about this. But you can't go out there, spend time with them, and then someone say, oh, so you agree with everything they're doing. Like, no. I recognize their need for a savior, just like someone else recognized for me that I needed one. I am a sinful man who needs to have my heart turn and repent to God. The same is true of everyone else. If we just act like we're high and mighty, we're better than, no one is going to come through repentance thanks to our actions. And that is terrible. That is, we are forsaking the very God who saved us if we do that. And he does not deserve that in our devotion. Jesus goes to those who need him. And those are the sick. People who think they're righteous, well, they're sick too. They just don't realize it yet. And sometimes we're able to talk to them. We're able to logic our way out of it. Sometimes we can't because they're already uh, convinced of the fact that they're saved. So they have nothing they need to do. And they can do whatever they want from now on. And if you are one of those people, please take the time to think about who Jesus truly is and what he desires from you and I. We are never going to be perfect enough on this earth to be above reproach. So hang out within reason in the midst of sinners to help them see their need for God. Like probably your best strategy right now is not to walk into the midst of a clan meeting at the, at midnight when they're burning a cross, probably not the best way to reach out. Although those people desperately need God. Think about how you approach them. Think about where we go to meet these sinful people. They need God. They need to change. But be smart about it. For those of you who remember, you're Daniel. Daniel didn't throw himself into the lion's den because he did what God was telling him to do. Someone else threw Daniel into the lion's den for being faithful. And because of that, Daniel was prepared. So prepare yourself for all these nasty situations you're going to get in talking to people who don't know Christ because they need you to be at your best as best as possible, because we're still screw-ups, and that's okay. But Jesus met in a horde of sinners because they needed him. We can do the same. Once again, within reason, think before you leap. Also here, 
Jesus calls out to people who act pious but have no relationship with him while seeking after those who recognize their need for him and rescuing him. I kind of went over that a bit, but essentially Jesus gets to the root of the problem. They don't know him. And the fact that they don't is astounding because if anyone, like we said before, if anyone should have known who he was, it should have been them. But they rejected him. Time and time again, they have no one to blame but themselves when justice is delivered in the end. I would finish off today with 33 through 39. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so did the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. Fasting. Jesus, we already went over him fasting. Can be an important spiritual tool to use. Problem is, the Pharisees did it all the time to make them look righteous. John's disciples, on the other hand, fasted out of faithfulness and solidarity with their leader. When he would ask them to fast, they would fast so that they could get their minds right, so they could stay on target for the mission instead of being seen as, oh, well, I'm just, I can't eat today, possibly, because I'm just spending more time with God. You ever met someone like that? It can get incredibly annoying very soon. Don't be like them. Please. You deserve better. Guys, we can fast. It is good. Like I said before, people during Lent, it's an excellent time to do it as a remark of what Jesus did. You don't have to do a whole 40 days. You can only do one day. It could be whatever. If your heart is intent on seeking out God and hearing his mission for you, fast. If you're doing it to look good in front of others, stop. All you're doing is hurting yourself and the witness you have. But what we also see here is that Jesus' disciples at that time did not fast because they were supposed to be focused on that mission at that time, which was Jesus teaching them everything he knew and that they were going to be doing his work later on. But later on, they would fast when Jesus had left them. That's Jesus' point about the bridegroom. Like, look, this is supposed to be a time of celebration, of people turning away from who they used to be, of people learning about what the right thing to do is, of how to instruct others how to do it. That is a beautiful, wondrous thing. But if you spend all your time all crotchety and following the law to the letter rather than actually living out a life that helps others, what use are you? And that's why Jesus' disciples at that time They just ate and drank, and they were merry, and it was good to do so. But there's a time and a place for everything. And when the bridegroom left, when Jesus leaves, as is ascending up to heaven, then they can start fasting. Because it's a time to mourn for a little bit. 
Lastly, when Jesus brings up the point of the new wine and the old wine, when we start our walk with Jesus, we are the new wine. But after spending time with him and focusing on him, we learn the reasons for why we do what we must do and then can do them correctly. So guys, hear this out. What new wine does to old wineskins is it causes it to stretch even further and break and bust. But the reason you had that old wineskin in the first place is because you had wine maturing into those who drink. Doesn't it taste a lot better after a lot of time spent than when you just get the new batch coming in? I mean, I'm not a wine connoisseur, so I can't tell you for sure, but I have a lot of friends who do. And I've been assured the older the better for most cases out there. So the same thing is true of us as baby believers. Whatever you're starting your walk, you are the new wine. Give yourself time in this new wineskin to grow, mature, and become that flavor that people are just going to be knocked away from, uh, uh, knocked out by just how good you are as a disciple, as a follower of Christ. So guys, don't force new believers to do things like fasting because other believers have done the same. They're not ready. For the most part, they're not ready. Give them time to mature. Give yourself time to mature. The Christian of six, seven years old who gave his life to Christ is way different than the Christian uh, who is 32 now. Those are two very different people. But if I tried doing what I do now at that age, I would have busted. My, my wineskin would have busted open, and who knows? I could have left the church. I could have done a lot of other things that would be harmful to myself because someone kept forcing me to do something I wasn't ready for. It's okay to be patient. So, guys, that was Luke chapter 5. Thank you all for listening again. This was a ton of fun. Feel free If you have that moment, leave yourself a five-star review on whatever podcasting platform you're at because it'll help us with the rankings and help us to find more people to be introduced to them that way. If you're looking for more of me, and I'm so sorry that that's how you feel, (laughs) you can find me every now and then as a roundtable host on the Whole Church Podcast, and I'm one of the co-hosts of the Systematic Geekology Podcast. If you're interested in my fiction writing, go ahead and check out my works at www.com. Uh, starvingwritersguild.com or on Amazon you by searching the name MC Ashley. You can t- contact us here at the Le- uh, Let Nothing Move You podcast at gmail.com. And with all that in mind, God bless you all in accordance to his will and not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you.